Let us pray together. God, we remember that Jesus told us that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst of us. We come here today and claim that promise, and we pray that it is so. That the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts may be truly acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our Redeemer, and let the church say, Amen. Amen. Let us tell you from the outset that I was inspired today by my favorite sermon on this passage, which not surprisingly is by one of my favorite preachers, Barbara Brown Taylor. So I have adapted liberally from her sermon. I'm going to be down here and choir. If you can't hear me, please just yell out, okay? Um, in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, which we just heard Deb read, Jesus is very concerned about community, how we live in community, how we act with one another, how we relate to one another. And I think part of this is because Jesus knows that we work to better, better in community, that we are not meant to go off and have our own holy experiences separate from each other, but to come together just as you and I have come together this morning. And some of that is practical as well as spiritual, because Jesus knows that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, there and then he will be in the midst of them. He knows that two heads are better than one. He knows that we can get more done together. It makes me think of what the social anthropologist Margaret Mead said when she said, no, never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. And such can be true about the truth. <laughs> such can be true about the church if we really live into it and believe it. Jesus also very specifically in Matthew's gospel uses the word brother. We changed it here for modern purposes to sibling. But he talks about this being a family. That when we come together as a family, there's a certain way we need to act. Now, many of you may know that in a healthy family... It's a good place to learn how to be in the world. It's the original social setting for all of us. And in healthy families, we learn how to compromise. Siblings are really good for that, learning how to compromise, because you learn that you can't always get your way that you want. You also learn sometimes you've got to let other people have the way they want it. There's a give and take, which is part of being fully human. I'll also say that healthy families and good siblingship teach us how to fight. Good spouses teach us how to fight. Now, in my family, I was the youngest of three, the baby. I'm seven and ten years younger than my older brother and sister. And when I was little, I was considered to be cute, adorable. I, they tell me that. I'm not telling you that. And I thought it was very natural, and I also had a mind that could soak up lots of information. So I thought it was very natural that if I soaked up all that information, everyone else automatically wanted to hear it all the time, right? And if they were wrong, I was happy to correct them. Very charming. When you're two or three. But to get a little older, it doesn't work. I think it's safe to say I was a precocious little shit. And once my brother got to teenagehood, he didn't like it very much. And he took to picking on me, not just picking on me, but bullying me, beating me up a little bit. I didn't get badly bruised or scarred, but enough to rough me up and realize 
that not everyone appreciates a precocious little shit. <laughs> Taylor in her sermon says that in families, we're kind of like pebbles in a jar. And by rubbing up against each other, we learn to smooth out each other's edges a little bit. Now, I'm aware that not all of us grew up in healthy families. Some of us grew up in families that are more like reformatories than cauldrons for forbearance and forgiveness. Some of us grew up in families where rules were more important than relationships, more important than people and that the authority figure was the one you always had to kowtow to. And that repressed a certain sort of individuality. And certainly any sense of conflict. Push it down. One of the first rules in some families is silence. Don't say anything if you don't have anything nice to say. Keep it under the rug. Keep it in the house. And so we don't learn to do conflict very well in those kinds of families. It just gets stuffed down and often seeps out in all sorts of difficult and unattractive, unhelpful, and even toxic ways. Jesus says in the family of faith, that's not going to work. That's not how we're going to do things. He says if you have a problem with someone, you need to go directly to them. If they offend you, if they sin against you, if they wrong you, you have to go directly to them and talk it out. In quiet, in silence, alone. And if that doesn't work, you need to bring two or three others along with you to talk it out and try to figure out and get and resolve the conflict. And if that doesn't work, you've got to bring the whole church with you to figure out the source of the problem and to come to a resolution. What's interesting about what Jesus says is that he puts the burden on the victim. If you are the one wronged, it's your responsibility to reach out. And I'm aware, for those of us who are left-leaning and try to be woke as possible, that that's a little counterintuitive, especially after decades of seeing people blame the victim. That's a trouble with Jesus' teaching. The other thing is that Jesus has no interest in who's right or wrong. He just cares about the relationship, about coming back together as a family. That's his primary concern in this lesson, because... The worst thing is to pretend as if nothing happened, because then it just festers and sits there. He also says that if those techniques don't work, where you have go alone, and then you bring two or three others, and you bring the whole church, if that doesn't work, let them go. If you can't reconcile, let them be as a tax collector or a Gentile to you. I don't know if we have any IRS agents here, but it was a really bad thing in first century Palestine to be a tax collector, gouging the system. I wonder what it would look like if we tried that out. So say that you sit next to someone, Tom. I don't think we have a Tom here today. If we do, my apologies. But say you sit next to someone to Tom, like Tom, and you pass the peace in worship. And you actually heed Amy's advice, and you greet him and introduce yourself after worship. And you begin having small talk after worship and get to know each other just a little bit. Maybe even talk at coffee hour. You get to learn a little bit about each other's lives. And then one day Tom says, you know, I have some relatives from out of town coming to visit me. We want to go for a bike ride along the Charles River, maybe out the Minuteman Path. But I'm down a bike. Do you have a bike you could loan me? Now, you want to be good-natured. You have a bike you keep in good shape. You take it out for rides on the weekends. You think, sure, I've got a bike you can borrow. Let me arrange that. So you make the date. You trade off the bike. Tom goes off, presumably has a great time with his out-of-town family and friends. 
and then you don't hear anything. Nothing. After about a week of not hearing anything, you call up Tom, you go up into our Realm database directory, which you all need to know about, and you find Tom's number, and you call him up, and Tom's like, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, we were out on that bike ride and someone backed over your bike with a truck and damaged it. It's kind of wasted. Sorry about that, nothing I could do about it. Okay. So you go back to the Realm database directory and you find out two or three other people. You realize that Bill and Betty sit next, near, next to you and so you invite them to go and talk with Tom about this situation with the bike. And you come to Tom's house and you want to talk it out with him and you say, so Tom, you know, I think I can, might get my homeowner's insurance to cover the bike. It's worth maybe $800,000, I don't know. And uh, I can get you, I can make, be able to get a reimbursement if you just tell me what happens. What are you doing coming to my house to talk about this? What, are you trying to gang up on me? No, I'm not going to do that with you. He slams the door in your face. So what do you do next? Well, Jesus says, get on the Realm database directory again, and you send out an email to the whole church. And you say, at 11 o'clock on Saturday, we're all going to show up at Tom's house and talk to him. So you're out there on the lawn with your Dunkin' Donuts and your Starbucks. You've got some signs because we're a charitable community. And you say, Tom, it's okay. Forget about the bike. We love you. Everything is shuttered tighter than a drum. Nothing. You ring the doorbell. No one comes. You know he's in there, but no one comes. You wait 20 or 30 minutes. Still nothing. But then you see a little blind kind of peek up on the slats in the blind. And you can see that he sees you, but you can't see him. You wait another 20 minutes. And finally, Tom comes out, kind of sheepish. He has a check for 800 bucks for you. You hug, you embrace, we all sing, what a friend we have in Jesus, and sweet, sweet spirit, it's happy. The end. Right? I know you're saying, yeah, right. Yeah, right. I think that what Jesus suggests is really hard for us. And I think we have our usual strategies for dealing with that kind of situation. I know I do. One of them is just to decide, I need to let it go. It's $800. I can figure that out. It's a lot of money, but whatever. I'll let it go. And you just pretend it didn't happen. The next solution might be to give the cold shoulder. You're going to stop sitting on that side of the sanctuary. You're going to go sit somewhere else. And when you see Tom, you're just going to ignore him. You're going to kind of invisibilize him. So it's just like it didn't happen. Or the third strategy might be that you triangulate. You go and talk to someone else about what Tom did to you, but you won't talk to him. They have a relationship to Tom. Maybe they'll do that for you. Or it's often called pass-through communication. You will send the communication through them that it will go around you, and you are absolved of having to do it. Or you might try revenge. Just decide, you know, he's, he's, you write him off, and every time his name comes up, you kind of roll your eyes, or you make little snide comments, or you throw him under the bus whenever you get a chance. Anybody ever tried that? Any of those strategies. Jesus says that simply is not how it works. The great theologian and novelist C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. It's an allegorical novel. And in it, he says, he describes hell as a way in which many of us live. 
It's a city full of gray, empty houses and streets. Because everyone who once lived in them argued but couldn't come to resolution, so they moved farther out. And then they argued with those people and couldn't figure it out, so they moved farther out. And they did it again and moved farther out. And hell is just this big, huge city, the outskirts of full of people who won't talk to each other. That's what hell looks like. I don't know about you, but when I open up my news source every day, it looks a little bit like that. People not talking to each other, talking past each other, not working it out, not understanding their common humanity. But Jesus wants us to do is be direct and to maybe ask some self-reflective questions like, maybe is there a blind spot I have here? Is there some place I could be wrong? Or have I given that person every benefit of the doubt? Have I tried to think about it from their perspective? I don't know. Maybe Tom's way in his family of origin to deal with shame. Maybe his brother-in-law backed over it and he's ashamed of it. It's just to be silent or to get angry about it. I don't know. But let him tell me that. Or what do I hope to gain by confronting this person? Don't I make them feel bad? Or do I really want peace for myself and for the world around us? One of the questions is, what am I afraid of? Is the relationship worth the risk? You see, all those strategies will work if you like living on the outskirts of hell. But Jesus says, if we're really going to do this, we've got to have honest, courageous conversations. And then, if you've gone through those questions, then it's the time to pick up the phone, write the email, reach out, and say, hey, can we talk? And the thing to remember is that we are valuing the relationship. To remember that we are for the relationship, not against it. That we are seeking to be on the same side, not on different sides. That God is a God of reconciliation and not retribution. And that being right is less important than being in relationship. I just wonder if everyone who went to go serve in our legislatures had this idea that we're all in one big family together and it's most important that we stay in relationship and talk with each other about what we have in common instead of talking past each other and talking to the press about one another but really working to get things done. You see, I believe in a community of faith like this one, we get to practice how we're supposed to be out in the world and that's why Jesus gave us these instructions to try out, to try to live into them faithfully. Some of us had the benefit of healthy families. Some of us did not. My family was not 100% healthy, but I get to try to work that out with my Christian siblings here in this place. Now, if the person continues to harm you, if there's no reconciliation, I think Jesus is also clear about that. You've got to let them go. You've got to send them off with your blessing. You heard Peter ask about forgiveness. You've got to work on your forgiveness, and that sometimes takes a long time. You know, being in a family can be a real pain in the butt. Being in a community can be a real pain. Because we have to work at it sometimes. We have to try to learn to listen to each other, to see one another as children of God, made in the image of a divine creator, in all our many ways. But we are called to reach out. Jesus says, even when we're hurt, even when we know and God knows that we did nothing wrong, even when everything in us wants to retaliate instead of reconciling. My hope is that when we learn to do this, 
It's like when we had the Strawberry Festival out on our front lawn. And there is a scent of joy that is so permeable and so refreshing and so needed that people come from the outskirts of hell all around to join us. Amen.